Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Very thankful to be able to continue our study in 1 John. Today we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6 in chapter 3. Really what this is going uh, to be is an exposition concerning our relationship to the law. As Christians, our relationship to the law. General outline can break this down several ways. Three headings. Number one, under law. Everyone under law walks in darkness. Heading number two, under grace. Everyone under grace walks in the light. And heading number three, under law and grace. Everyone under grace keeps the law. We will unpack that surely. More simply put, heading number one is law. Heading number two is gospel. Heading number three is they sweetly comply. So now that you're following along in chapter three, starting in verse four, I will be reading out of the New American Standard Version. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now as we consider the wonderful things that you have provided to us in your word. And guide us by your spirit. Work these things to our hearts, souls, and affections. May we come away from this place worshiping you in fervent praise for what you have done in and through your son, Jesus Christ for us and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here's a question. What determines right from wrong? Ask this question promiscuously on the street and expect a variety of answers. Indeed, according to our postmodern secular culture, there are competing views on what makes or determines something as good or bad, right or wrong. Some will say it's based on how it makes us feel or how our decisions and choices make somebody else feel. In other words, it's based on emotion and passion. My children do this often in our home when me or my wife ask them to do something and they say, but I don't want to. Others will say that's not far enough. The determination of what is right or wrong must not be based on feeling alone, but must include the effects that accompany our actions, words and deeds. Someone ad advocating this view might say something like, well, what I'm doing isn't hurting anybody, and if it's not hurting anybody, then it's okay. Yet, others, thinking that they have the intellectual high ground, 
We'll look down on those seemingly infantile arguments, no matter how widespread they may be in our culture or how often they actually engage in them themselves, and say something like, right and wrong are objective truths based upon authority. And to that we would all say, amen. But they continue. They'll say, whether it's your parents, whether it's your teachers, whether it's your society or your government, these alone are the authority structures that decide what is right and wrong, acceptable or forbidden, child or adult throughout the land. The problem with that is that when you press them on the consistency of that argument, illustrating in the final analysis that even that standard is subjective and not objective, for after all, one society may tolerate what another society forbids. But one thing all these answers have in common is that they all flow from the self. All these answers were reasoned to from what someone thought made the most sense to them, their society. Here's the truth. What the Apostle John is going to explain from this text today is that we as Christians alone have the truly objective answer to the question, what determines right from wrong? Namely, God's law. And what's more, unlike the rest of fallen humanity, it is not us who determines this, but rather an ultimate authority, namely God himself. And our relationship to his law is reflective of our standing before him. With that in mind, let's unpack what the apostle and our Lord has for us this morning. Section number one, under law. Everyone under law walks in darkness. Now, verse four is picking up in context, surprise, surprise, from verse three. Do you recall verse 3? Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that is Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. The Apostle John is continuing his practice of making contrasts even with this verse, verse 4. The contrast is being made from what was previously said in verse 3. Everyone, John says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself, just as he is pure. I want to recall a quote that I read last time we were in 1 John by Stephen Ting, a 19th century theologian who wrote a very helpful book on the law and gospel. You may remember this quote. He said, In their adoption as children into the family of God, a love for his character and for the holiness which distinguishes it, has been implanted in their hearts. They are made to desire perfect holiness of character, which is the image of God, and obedience to his law. And though they work not for wages, and their hope rests not upon any obedience of their own, the spirit which is given to them leads them to press forward into every path of obedience, desiring to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect." One of the pithy sayings that we came away with last time was, 
The law is an enemy of justification, but it is a friend of sanctification. But now in verse 4, John is looking to a different everyone. Listen to what he says. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. This is not the same group as in verse 3. This is a contrast. Notice the action of those in verse 3. What do they do? That everyone purifies themselves. But notice the action of the everyone in this verse. They practice sin and lawlessness. This is a contrast between those who walk in darkness and those who walk in light. Between those who have had their sins forgiven and those who still remain in their sins. This is a contrast between all those who are in the new covenant and all those who are not. Namely, those who are in the covenant of grace are contrasted with those who are in the broken covenant of works. And we'll come back to that. But next, notice what John says about sin. He goes on to say that this everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and then he injects, he inserts a definition of sin. And sin is lawlessness. Now, there are several definitions in the Bible of sin. What is sin? This is a catechism question. What is sin? Well, Romans 14.23 says that whatever is not from faith is sin. Proverbs 24.9 says the devising of folly is sin. And even James 14.17 says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. But here, in this verse, the Apostle John is giving us a sort of forensic analysis of what sin is. All those other things are true about sin. But John is giving us a broader definition, a forensic analysis. What is sin? Listen, it is and has always been the breaking of God's law and is cosmic rebellion against him. This could pose some questions. How is it possible that a forensic definition of sin is the breaking of God's law and it's applicable to everyone at all times? What is God's law? Where was it revealed? Now we know the answer to these questions because we spent time in the catechism going over these things. But in a broad analysis, one might say, well, the law is the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law. Now, if you were a Jew living in the theocracy of Israel, you might say, well, it's much more than the Ten Commandments. We have judicial laws. We have ceremonial laws. In fact, the law, broadly speaking, is everything that God has commanded in the Torah. But that poses another question. If that's true, and the law consists of everything in the Torah, what about those who were living before the Torah was written? 
again, brothers and sisters, I'm confident that you know the answers to these questions because of our previous time going over the catechism. Listen to what the London Baptist Confession, verse 19, verse 2 says, which is where our catechism was trying to explain. The same law that was first written in the heart of man, now who's that? That's Adam, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai. There's the Ten Commandments. But notice that the Ten Commandments preceded the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. How did it precede it? Where was it given? It was written on the heart of Adam. And so it's written on every image bearer. We may think of someone who has never read the Bible as not knowing God's law. We might especially think of the person who is in a country that has not been evangelized, maybe an isolated people group. We always want to go back there in our thinking. What about, what about the, the indigenous person in a tribe somewhere who's never heard the name Jesus, who's never heard of the law, who's never had the Bible, who doesn't have it in their language even? What about them? They can't be breaking God's law. They don't have it. They do have it. They do have it. It's on their heart. Paul unpacks this for us in the book of Romans. But this is the point. Is that those who are not walking in the light, those who are not members of the new covenant, are in a broken covenant. The covenant of works. How often we may say to somebody or hear someone saying to somebody in evangelism, oh, you need to have a relationship with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, everybody is in a relationship with the Lord, whether they admit it or not. This was true for the first century Jew, the hearers of this epistle, and it is true for us today. This is true for the Jew who still reads Moses as with a veil over their heart, 2 Corinthians 3.15, and for all the Gentiles, who were not entrusted with the oracles of God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. And if sin, forensically analyzed, is the breaking of God's law, what Paul is saying there is that every image bearer of God has broken his law. And we all fall short of that promise that was given to Adam in the garden, that reward that was given to him if he were to keep the covenant of works, that he would enter into a new state of existence. Glorification. We've all fallen short of that because we're all in a broken covenant of works where Adam didn't keep it, and then the consequence of not keeping that covenant has been inherited by all of us. We have all at one time or another walked in this broken covenant of works that has been inherited from our first father, Adam. That's the law. That's what everybody is under if they are outside of Christ. They are under the law as a means of justification before him. They are guilty in his heavenly courtroom of justice. There is no standing. There is no hope. 
They are under law in this sense. And after making this contrast, the Apostle John then moves on to the gospel. Like a good evangelist, he contrasts the law with the gospel. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. This is the gospel. This is the, the breaking in of the covenant of grace in time and space. Yes, the reward of the covenant of grace was available, was offered, was obtained by everybody before the incarnation, before Jesus in time and space entered into this world assuming human flesh. The covenant of grace and the reward thereof was available, but only because it was guaranteed that this would come to pass. It was guaranteed that he would come, and not only come, but take away sins as well. But let us not forget that this was indeed a mystery. How would the Lord forgive sin? How would the Lord forgive iniquity? How would the Lord forgive transgression against his law? Put yourself in the shoes of the Jew before the incarnation. The Jew knew it would happen. Those who were entrusted with the oracles of God knew it. The faithful Jew believed it. They believed the promise, and it was credited to them as righteousness. Think of Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Later, the Jews would even know that the Messiah would be the one through whom this healing would come. Think of Isaiah 53. But exactly how was left to the types and the shadows. In fact, Satan himself, who is much more familiar with the scriptures than they then or us today, didn't know either. Think of his temptations in the wilderness. But nonetheless, these scriptures were written. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Brothers and sisters, that is a mystery. Numbers 14, 18 would be a real head-scratcher. How is it possible that the righteous king of the universe, in whom is no corruption and sin, in whose presence no sin can be how is it possible that this God can forgive iniquity and transgression while at the same time not clearing the guilty the Old Testament is clear that we're all guilty so how is it possible that any could be forgiven 
The psalmist knew this well in Psalm 85, verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Again, how? Psalm 103, verses 2 to 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Or Psalm 32, which says, How blessed is he whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, brothers and sisters, we read these verses and we see how it fits with Christ. We see the plan of God to send his son to take away sin. It was clearly held forth even to our first parents, Adam and Eve, that this one whom the Lord would send, this head-crushing seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, would be the one to destroy the works of evil, to destroy Satan. But how this would unfold in time and space, again, was a progressive revelation that was in types and shadows. It is clearly on display for us who have New Testament eyes to see. But these things would have been very perplexing to those who did not have the lenses that we have today. In fact, Peter tells us that the prophets of old inquired into these things. They searched the scriptures trying to find answers to these kinds of questions. John said in the beginning of this verse, verse 5, you know. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. John said you know because he again is talking about those who have had their sins forgiven. He's talking again about that everyone in verse 3 of this chapter. These are they who purify themselves in Christ. These are his sheep. And what he, in other words, is, what he's saying, in other words, is, you know the gospel. You know this. That Jesus of Nazareth is the one, the Holy One of Israel, who in the fullness of time was sent by the Father, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he would receive the adoptions as sons. Remember, John in the context here has talked about our adoption. He's talked about these wonderful truths. And this is the point that the Lord Jesus came so that we could be adopted, so that we could have our sins forgiven. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. And this is the one whom John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God! who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist understood that the Messiah would do this. And he links it with this idea of sacrifice. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God, which speaks to his atoning work of sacrifice. And this is exactly where John goes in his next comment. 
He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, but then he says, and in him there is no sin. Now, why is that important? Why would John interject this little commentary on the one who appeared in order to take away sins? Why would it be such a big deal that in this one who appeared, there was no sin? Well, providentially, we learned about it from our Old Testament reading this morning. In the sacrificial system, how all the animal sacrifices had to be pure. What were those pointing to? They were pointing to Christ. They were pointing to his sinlessness. And why is that important? Because you know, if he had sin, he is not a worthy sacrifice for us. It very well could have been that at the time of this writing, John, again, is setting up an apologetic against those false teachers who have entered the church, teaching a different ethic, teaching a different gospel. Many of those teachers had certainly twisted sin, twisted the definition of sin. Brothers and sisters, that happens today. There may have been teachers among them who said, you know what, according to our new definition of sin, we don't have any. John after making a forensic declaration of what sin is, is shining a spotlight on false teachers who would claim that they don't have any sin. There's only one who has no sin that has taken on flesh. Only one. This is why Jesus would say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me because he's the only sinless one. In him, there is no sin. In us, there's plenty of it. Rejoice that you have a savior who has borne your sorrows, borne your grief, borne your iniquity, he is the answer to all of these types and shadows. He is the way by which the Lord blesses and forgives his people and yet doesn't clear the guilty. Because your sin fell upon him and your sin was paid for. If you are in him, you can be declared free because he was declared guilty on your behalf. He has washed you in his blood. This is how our confession again puts it now that we're in the gospel section. We read the law, now we're reading the gospel. The covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners."
under law, under grace. Now at this point, you might be saying, I've heard this before. I know that I'm not under law. I've read Romans chapter 6. And when anybody ever talks to me about the law, or maybe you know a friend who is like this, when anybody ever brings up the law to me, I'm quick to remind them, hey, I'm not under law. I'm under grace. Let's read Romans chapter 6. Turn with me if you're able. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I want to start reading in verse 12. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We have mentioned in the past how this epistle can be used easily to twist what the scriptures teach. In fact, even these verses, and we're going to see them added as we continue in this study, even these verses have been used by false teachers to teach things that are not true, to put a burden on the back of those who are in Christ. And this is what the next verse is often used for. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6, he's giving... He's giving an encouragement that we do not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And here's this idea of reigning. Reigning. Because this is what John means when he said in verse 4, everyone who practices sin. Because what's wrapped up in this idea of practice is this present tense, ongoing obsession. We've said it before, it's the one who loves sin. One of the tests to see if you are in Christ. Again, I teach this to my children because they ask, how do I know? It's a very good question. I believe. How do I know? Investigate your relationship to sin. Do you hate your sin? Or do you love your sin? This is a probing question that we can do internally with ourselves. Because to love your sin is to be, a mas- to be mastered by it. To practice it. And this is what John means when he says, everyone who practices sin. Brothers and sisters, this is not the elect. This is not those who are in the covenant of grace. 
This is the one who's under the covenant of works. They are the ones who practice sin. Because John later is going to say in this epistle, and we'll get there, when he says, in other words, nobody who's in Christ sins. Now think about that. You hear those words, and you say, well, that's surely not me. I thought I was in Christ, but now I hear John saying, if you sin, you're not. John isn't using the language that way. He's not using the language in a way to hone in on the idiosyncrasies of the Christian life. He's making covenantal contrasts here. This is what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 6 when he says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. It's a plea that we all need to hear as Christians in the covenant of grace. But it's not speaking of those who are rightly in it because sin is not reigning in those who are in the covenant of grace. The Holy Spirit is reigning. The righteousness of Christ is reigning. That doesn't mean you don't sin. That doesn't mean you don't struggle. What it means is you're not in a broken covenant of works. That is not your standing before God. And this is what John goes to in the very next verse. Let's look at verse 6. And this is what I mean when I say that the law and the gospel sweetly comply. This is what our confession means when it says that the law and the gospel sweetly comply. This is why this heading is entitled, Under Law and Grace. Brothers and sisters, there is a way in which we're not under law for our justification, for our standing before God. But there is a qualified way in which we can say that we are under law. And this is what John is going to get to in this verse here, verse 6. Read with me. No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. Now again, you read this verse on the surface and you say, well, I sin continually. So have I not seen him? Do I not know him? No, when you remember that what John is doing here is covenantal contrasts, it makes it clear. John is back to those who are in the covenant of grace. So in other words, when he says no one who remains in him sins continually, what he can say is this, no one who is in the covenant of grace has sin reigning over them. No one who is in the covenant of grace has sin reigning over them. No one who is in the broken covenant of works has seen him or knows him. That is what John is saying. Brothers and sisters, do not read verses like this. Put a burden on your back and start to question your salvation. That was not John's intent. John is showing two categories of people, and he's contrasting them back and forth. He's been doing this since we started 1 John. Whoever hates his brother does not know Christ. 
you may think, I, I think I might be guilty of hating someone in Christ at one time or another. No, John is setting up covenantal contrasts. No one who remains in him sins continually. Other translations will say things like, no one who abides in him sins continually. This is, again, this sinning continually is this making a practice of sin, being a slave to sin. We've seen this in the Gospels. John would record that Jesus would say, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Again, you hear those words and you say, that's me. I sin, so I'm a slave to sin, right? But Jesus didn't use it that way. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You see, Jesus has two categories of people. Not sinners and believers who have now attained a sinless perfection in this life, but rather sinners who are in the broken covenant of works and those who are in the covenant of grace. No one who abides in him. No one who remains in him. How do you remain in him? How do you abide in him? Well, the first thing we have to remember is that it's all of grace. Abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, it's all of grace. It's not our works. Number two, we remain in Christ, we abide in Christ by renewing our minds in the mind of Christ, in the scriptures. Abide in me and bear much fruit. Number three, resting in Christ. Resting in Christ. Remember, the law is an enemy of justification. We never want to look to the law to, to, to uh, be sure of our standing before God. I know that when I do that, I feel like I have no standing before him. But there are those who are so puffed up with pride that they think that their works actually contribute to their standing before God. We may as believers subtly do that. The Lord's not pleased with me today or this week or this month or this year. I've been a wreck. Abiding in Christ is to rest in Christ. But here's the one which sweetly complies with the gospel. Looking to God's law as a rule and a standard for our living. If you are in Christ, if you are in the new covenant, you come to Christ with nothing in your hands and you say, Lord, what can I do for you? How should I live? Our confession puts it this way. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them, as well as to others, in that as a rule of life. We are under law in this sense, that it's a rule of life. And it's not burdensome. It's something that you want to do. 
again, if it is burdensome, in the sense that not keeping it, but doing it, if you don't look, if you don't desire to keep the law, oh, I want to do this terrible thing, but the law says I can't. I'm angry because I want to do this thing. This is part of examining yourself to see what your relationship to God's law is. Because everyone under grace keeps the law. Not perfectly. But in the sense that we follow it as a rule of life and we desire to do so. And here's the miracle of regeneration. You, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, were unable to keep the law before you were saved. Even if you did what the law requires, did you do it from a regenerate heart? Did you do it the way that God requires it to be done? You see, it's like a three-legged stool. Our confession describes a good work, biblically defined, as doing what God commands, doing it God's way, and doing it from a pure heart. May we never look at those who are in the broken covenant of works, and we can see it all around us in cults, and those who claim to be religious, and they do good things, and we say, that person's keeping the law. What a blessing. He's not far from the kingdom of heaven. Biblically defined, that's not a good work. You're missing one of the legs on the stool. It's not done from a regenerate heart. And we, as unbelievers, when we walked in this broken covenant of works, didn't have the ability to do any good works. But brothers and sisters, you've been set free in Christ. And now you can do good works. Do you do them consistently? No. Does anybody do them consistently? No. Are there false teachers who claim that based upon this verse you can? Yes. What do you do? What do these false teachers do when you point them to Paul? And you say, look at the Apostle Paul. Most Christians agree that aside from Christ, this is a godly man. He says, I don't do the things that I want to do. And I do the things that I don't want to do. What about Paul? Did Paul not get there yet? You false teacher who claims that you can keep the law perfectly? What about Paul? Well, I guess Paul, when he wrote that, just wasn't there yet. Think of the pride. But let that not be a wet blanket on the reality that you, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you can do good works. Not just works that seem to be good by the public eye of those around us, but good works as defined by God. We are his workmanship, prepared for what? Good works. confession goes on neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel but do sweetly comply with it the spirit of christ subduing and enabling the will of man listen to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of god revealed in the law requires us to do this is the journey of humanity Adam, in the garden before the fall, was able to keep the law. After the fall, Adam was unable to keep 
the law. Unable. When the Lord clothed Adam and Eve with those animal skins and gave them life from the dead, clothed them, forgave their sins, when they looked to that promise of the Redeemer who would come to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, now they were able to keep the law again, but they were also able to sin. But after glorification, brothers and sisters, after we take off this tent of corruption and we stand as the stars of the heavens, we will be able to keep God's law and unable to break it. That's an amazing truth. What happens if somebody sins on the new earth? What happens if somebody breaks God's law after every lawless one who's outside of a covenant of grace? Even death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. What happens then? What happens to that person then? There is no that person then. This is what we are being saved to. We are saved from the condemnation of the law now, and one day we'll be saved from the practicing of the breaking of the law. And how I know you and Christ desire that now, but abide in Christ. Rest in him. Do not try to keep the law to remedy that desire. Rather, rest in him, and the good works will flow from the person who is resting. We rest so that we can work. I want to end with our call to worship this morning. When you think about these things, it makes your heart sing. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We intimately know that if it was not for your grace, we go the same way as all those who are outside of Christ. It is nothing good in us, Lord, that gives us a standing before your throne. It is the one whom you have sent, born of a woman, born under the law, designed to take away our sins, and so he did and does forevermore. We're no longer under a broken covenant of works, but rather are in an unbreakable covenant of grace with our Redeemer, our Master, our Lord, and our friend as its head. Oh, Father, thank you for giving us these things in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.